Well, good morning, and again, happy Father's Day to you all. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Psalms. We uh, concluded our shorter seri- series, I guess, um, on Elijah and Elisha, um, short by meaning nine weeks, but for some that might be just long enough. Um, and as we enter summer, we always try to um, go through the Psalms, and uh, last summer we, we left off with Psalm 7, and so we're going to be picked back up with Psalm 8, and uh, the idea being that we would travel through all the Psalms uh, at some point through uh, the consecutive summer. So Psalm 8 will be our text this morning, as you've already been made aware of in this service. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Psalm, Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would do a miracle as we often ask, and by miracle that you would soften hardened and hearts this morning that you would push back the lies and the narratives that we tell ourselves, that we believe, that shape us, that are against and opposed to even the promises and the love that you speak to us, that you say who we are. And so where our hearts are hardened to that, would you soften it and do a miracle in that way, that we may see Jesus this morning that we may be changed because of him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, as we begin summer, a good time to ask, what are the rhythms or the practices in your life that shape you the most? What are the rhythms and the practices uh, in your life that shape you the most? As we move into summer, we are reminded of the rhythms of the seasons, for example, that mark time for us and give shape to our lives. From summer to fall, as school starts back, fall to winter, winter to, winter to spring, and back to summer again. But there are other rhythms, right? There are other practices that shape our lives, not just the seasons. I knew two men who every, Tuesday, or every second Tuesday of the month, they had lunch together at this same place, and they've been doing it for over 20 years. That will shape somebody, just the commitment alone. Every day at 
at lunch from third grade to eighth grade, um, I used my leftover 35 cents to buy a large strawberry slushie. And that shaped me in other ways. What are the daily and weekly rhythms or practices that shape you? The church calls these daily, weekly practices liturgy or liturgies. Liturgy is the the regular rhythms of something that over time shape us. They shape the way that we think about things, the way that we feel about them. They shape our doing and ultimately our being. I hope that by now when we come to take communion and we confess the mystery of faith together, that you don't have to even look at your bulletin to read back that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, right? The goal is to get that so embedded in your brain and why? So that it might begin to shape you, to shape your thinking, to shape your doing, to shape your being. All of us this morning are people of liturgy, whether we consider ourselves religious or not. All of us have built-in rhythms and practices in our lives, big or small, that whether we know it or not, they are doing the work of shaping us over and over. And so the question becomes, are we even aware of the liturgies in our lives and how they are shaping us? especially the ones we practice throughout the week. And a big one that we talk a lot about is this liturgy, the smartphone. But for some, the first thing we do in the morning is we grab our phones and, and we check our email and our texts and our social media accounts and we, 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 we've got to find out what we missed. We've got to find out who liked our posts. And for others, it's work. We gotta follow up with that person uh, with the next email. We gotta let them know that we are on top of things. It's almost instinct even to wake up and to start working. And while we might see these things as insignificant and menial, they are actually what? Shaping us, reinforcing who we are and that who we are is defined by what we do, and so on and so forth. Well, this morning, as we re-enter the Psalms this summer, we come to the one book that was intended above all others, right? Of course, all Scripture shapes us, but the one book above all others that shapes God's people, uh, also known as the hymn book of the Bible, which is the Psalms. And this morning we come to Psalm 8 that, that many would consider one of David's finest, perhaps the, the perfect hymn. And while there are many things that this Psalm teaches us, what I want us to see with this psalm, certainly as we begin the series for the summer, is to see what it says and to see then how uh, it might shape us as a liturgy, as God intended. As it might shape us as a practice and as a rhythm in our life and why that would be important for us. So no points this morning. Another summer privilege, I guess. Let's just walk through this because there's only nine verses. And then we'll consider some implications, okay? So let's take that first verse there. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David begins this psalm with the name of the Lord, whose name is majestic, or you might say grand, or famous, actually, throughout all the earth. 
And to say that something is majestic, maybe a, lang- a word that we don't traffic in a whole lot today, is to assign it significance above anything else. And this is where David begins. Uh, we might use the word awesome in our, in our uh, vernacular, uh, but that's kind of lost its meaning too because everything is awesome today. But to assign majesty, to say something is majestic, is to say that it is put above everything else. It is to speak of its particular significance. And by beginning with what is most significant for David, what he aligns himself with who he is as a human being, with what is most true, and that God, his God, is the name above all names over this earth. That God is what is most beautiful to David. That God is what is most meaningful than anything else. And so before any other thoughts or emotions begin to creep in, right, certainly knowing a little bit more of the Psalms, that this is the place uh, to present our questions. Before David says, you know, God, why are you doing what you're doing? Or what are you doing? Or why do I find myself here? The controlling thought for David is to say back to his creator, how wonderful you are. How marvelous you are how majestic you are, how important and glorious is your name in all the earth. This is David's first thing. And first things, as we all know, are important, especially as they shape who we are. Like for some of us, myself included, the day does not begin without that first cup of coffee in the morning. For some, it's the first meal of the day that is the most important, which is breakfast. For others, I can't begin my day without getting my exercise in first. Or for others, I just, I, nothing starts until I get that shower out of the way and I can wake up. First things are important. For David, though, this verse shapes his thoughts or emotions about who he is, who God is, and what he thinks of this world. Oh, Lord, our Lord shapes David's thoughts about himself, right? David belongs to this God who belongs to others, which also means he belongs to them. This is his God is what he is saying. How majestic is your name, right? Shapes David's thoughts about God and that there isn't anything above the name of the Lord. And how majestic is your name in all the earth, shapes David's thoughts about the world, that this God is not absent, but he is very much present and involved as the creator God that he is. See, everything David needs for the day, for life, is right here in this opening line. This is David's first thing. Now look, David is not being pietistic here. He is not saying that that first thing should always be your daily quiet time, your devotion, your meditations on God, though that is a good thing. What we mean by first things for David and what he means by it, why he leads this way, is what, what, what is primary. What is primary. And what's primary for David in his life is the praise of God from his own lips and the acknowledgement that his name is what is most significant and most beautiful throughout all the earth. And why this is important for God's people is because this is, this is intended to shape his people whether they feel it or not. Whether this is the thing that's, ordering, that's ordered in their life correctly or not. Let us begin here. You might say that David is a follower 
of the first commandment in this psalm, right? Uh, the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. It's not just that, that, that God felt it good just to put that as number one and all the others could, could be number one, but we'll put that one as number one. No, no, no. That one is primary. It is first above all other things. It actually gives direction and meaning to the rest of the commandments. This is what I mean by first things, and this is what I mean by primary as David begins this psalm. God himself is primary, not David's own achievements as king, which he could easily uh, write there. God himself is primary, not, not David as father or brother, but the name of the Lord is his first thing. David not only begins this psalm with these words, but he ends this psalm with these words, words that certainly shape for David who he is, who God is, and what he thinks of this world. Next, David gives weight, though, to these words as, as, it, as it creates a doorway, right, to enter into this psalm. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Definitely the most complicated part of this psalm. David is saying both that all that God is, it can't, cannot be contained or grasped, right? His majesty, his glory is above the heavens, yet even what is the most weak and the most helpless perhaps in society, right? Proclaim it and return glory back to him. They do what is most significant even in their own helplessness is what David is recognizing when Solomon, David's son, dedicated the temple back in 1 Kings 8, 27, you thought we were leaving kings, but we're not. In verse 27, he said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, and this is what Solomon says. To say God's glory is set above the heavens is to give range in one sense. It is, it is not containable. Jamie and his dad, Ian, and their commentary study on Psalm 8, write this. As the fourth century theologian Epiphanius says, knowing God is like looking at the sky through a window. You can see the sky truly, but you can never see the whole sky. Your perspective is limited by the window. So too, although we see God's majesty in the world, we should never think that God is to be identified with the world or contained within the world. Rather, we must always see God's glory as what going far beyond it. In other words, the range of God's glory is what is in view for David. How vast and how uncontainable from above the heavens to the mouths of babes and nothing gets in the way of this glory. God has established a stronghold for his creation against his foes. I love what one commentator says about this before we move on again. It is by obscure and naturally feeble instruments that he, God, makes his name glorious here below and overcome whatever is opposed to this glorifying. Well, having acknowledged the vast glory of God, David then gets to what might be considered the most pointed section of the psalm, the place that all of this is running, and that is verses three to four. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, uh, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man, verse four, that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would care for him? 
And such a natural thought that is, as we consider the flow of thought here from David. You can almost imagine him looking up in the fields at night and seeing the stars in the sky in its infiniteness, right? And begin to think how small and insignificant it makes him feel. And perhaps you've had a similar experience, whether looking up at the stars in the sky or just admiring God's creation. With our technology today, we have the benefit of actually seeing into space places and things that no other human being has ever seen before. That's pretty special. If you have seen any of the images that have come from the new James Webb Space Telescope, right, that they have produced, you have seen things that no other human being has seen before ever. And, and in such clarity, I might add. Some of these images and their size and their distance from our own solar system are, are and I, I want to say almost, but I really think they are impossible to comprehend. We know they're there. We can tell you their distance, but you don't have the ability to understand what that means. For example, Pandora's cluster. Google it when you get home. 3.5 billion light years away. I don't even know what 3.5 billion feels like, let alone 3.5 billion light years, right? But here's what this psalm is saying. That this creation, right, this, this work of God's fingers, right, the Pandora's cluster, is God's finger painting. Next to God's creation, though, when we consider this and we try to put our minds around it is the effect it has on us and how it gives us then this feeling of insignificance and to wonder if this is how vast and glorious this God creator is. What would a God like this have to do with someone like me? How could the God who created all that the James Webb Space Telescope is showing us and all that we can't see and we never will be able to see and all that this amazing earth displays over and over, how could he be mindful of me? How could he care for me? In other words, who am I is what David is saying. Do I matter would be another way to put it. And that's a question all of us ask at some point in our lives. If the, if the creation around you doesn't prompt that question, other life experiences certainly will. Now remember, this is King David writing this psalm. He, even he wonders, even he asks, do I matter? Am I significant? And the question, though natural and important as it is, is not nearly as important as the answer to which he derives, which shapes David more than any other answer, and its intention is that it would shape us, which is what he gives us in verse 5. Yet you have made him, speaking at this point of all of mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Consider that and its importance as a daily liturgy. For David, why he matters, the significance his life holds is not found in what he does, but who God says that he is. 
which is what? Crowned creation. Nothing else in creation holds that title, that declaration, mind you. Nothing else in creation, we are told, is crowned. No animal, no livestock, no, no fish of the sea, no, no beautiful landscape that we would frame and attempt to remember forever. Nothing is crowned in God's creation except human beings, mankind. Notice from here to verse 8 that this reads just like a Genesis creation account, which David certainly has in mind. And why is it that it's, it's mankind that is crowned creation? It's because mankind is what? Made in the image of God. That is what gives you your significance, according to David. That is what gives you your worth and your value. But David sees the vastness, right, and the beauty and the power of God in his creation, and it moves him to wonder if God is even mindful of him. Yet in the very next verse, David reminds himself that not only is God mindful of mankind, but that mankind is and always will be unique among his creation. Special among his creation, significant among his creation. And this comes from God's pronouncement upon him, not himself or what he has achieved or not achieved. You have given him dominion, as we read earlier, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, right? Nothing in creation can say that. All sheep, oxen, beasts of the fields, etc., etc. Here David recalls his place in the world. And if I could stop here for a second, one of the most important things that you can do as a human being, as a liturgy, is recall your place in the world. Not as you see it, but as God sees it. As one who sits in this unique place of God's creation, right below the heavenly beings, but above creation. David reminds himself and us that we are not gods, literally what verse 5 is saying, that we are made lower than the heavenly beings, yet we hold a place above all of the other living creations, so much so that mankind is given dominion, as we read, over creation, over what is below or under his feet. And this has always implied care, and it has implied stewardship of God's creation. Thus human beings, as David is reminding himself, occupy this middle ground, as it were, between God and his creation, and in so doing, align themselves with God's order of the world. This is what's shaping David as well. That we might not think too much of ourselves being made a little lower than the heavenly beings, but that we also might not think too little of ourselves as well as God's crowned creation over his infinite and glorious world. All right, but there's one more thing here. It's not just being created in God's image that makes David this crown creation as he begins to end this psalm. All humans are created in God's image. What's different is what is meant for God to be mindful of him, to be mindful of his people. And see, to be, to be mindful of something is not just to remember it on occasion as if you had forgotten it for a while. To be mindful in Scripture is always what, for someone to move towards another. And it's to move towards another relationally. In other words, it is to love that creation uniquely. This is what David is saying. What is man that you are mindful that you would move towards us? You wouldn't just think of us. 
but that you would move towards us in such a way that you would love us. After studying David's life, perhaps it is true to say that there was no other controlling narrative in his own life that shaped him as this. And that is to know from the God who created everything, seen and unseen, that David, you matter. Your life has significance, not because you're a king, not because you, 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 you fell Goliath or experienced prosperity as Israel's leader, a.k.a. you are good king, president, businessman, family man, whatever, but because you are loved by me, crowned with glory and honor. This is what shapes David's heart. <clears throat> and as a liturgy to God's people, its design is that it might shape ours as well. It's clear why many consider Psalm 8 to be one of the most significant pieces of liturgy for God's people, and it returns the question to us, what shapes you? What are the narratives this morning that are telling you who you are, that are telling you who God is, that are telling you what to think about this world? Because something is, that's why this psalm exists, because something is in God's intention, right? Perhaps even the stronghold, not just physically, but spiritually, the stronghold here is that this would in turn begin the shaping. But something is, whether we are aware of it or not, and one question this psalm has for us this morning as we discern what these liturgies might be is, where are you this morning drawing your significance? Where, where, when, when you ask the question, and you all do, at some point in time, do I matter, you, your heart points to something. And that is where you derive significance from. Where is that? Is it from a relationship or what others say about you? Or do you matter because of what others say about you? Dads, do you matter because you are dads? Does your sense of self-worth go up and down depending then on the voice of, of those others or of the likes that you get from your social media accounts? Where do you find that significance? Is it from your work? Is it your sense of significance in the grades that you make or the dollars that you bring home? Is it in your family or your children Right? My worth and my value comes from kids, my kids and my grandkids, whatever it may be. See, all of us in some way allow the voices and affirmation of others or what we do to be our liturgy, to shape us, to be our defining narrative that, that says, this is what you're worth. This is where your worth comes from. This is where you find significance. And the question the Psalm puts before us is, where is that coming from for you? Second, though, what is primary for you? What is your first thing? And the reality is the two of these actually go hand in hand. You've probably noticed that where we find significance in life becomes primary for that very reason. And what is primary becomes what? Our source of significance. You can see, you can see the genius behind this. And for some, right, it is, it is having control and power in our lives. And so for others, it is in our reputation, 
which is our primary thing, the thing we care most about. Therefore, the things that bring us uh, this, this, this reputation, right, that bring us this control and this power, right, those are the things that are protected and they're given value above everything else. They are primary things for us. And the places or means to which we achieve them become the places we what also derive our significance. If power and control is what is primary and perhaps money gives that to you, then it is also where you derive your significance this morning. And how do you know? Well, just wait until it's threatened. It is no surprise that in the financial collapse in 2008, just as it happened in, I think it was 1932, 28, somebody will, 29, 29. People jumped out of buildings. Nothing's changed. Likewise, if reputation is primary, then what others think of you is where you derive your significance. How do you know? Just wait until the likes go away. All right? We don't have to do too much of a search to realize the, the, the level of depression and anxiety that social media has brought into our world. Because we are deriving our significance and our worth from what other people are saying or likewise not saying. See, we are creations that long for significance and where we find it, and that's what becomes primary in our lives. And I would say that all of us walk in here in some shape or form or another, and what our service is trying to do as well is reorder that for us. You walk in here, I walk in here, maybe aware of it or not, with having put something else as primary in our lives. We don't want that to be the case. But that's what happens. And what the psalm is saying is that the only place, right, that can be found that not only has real power and meaning, but actually holds up is the love of God towards his people, his mindfulness of them, that where you find your significance in life is what God has said about you. This is what the psalm is saying. And what is primary is his name then above all names. Is this what shapes you? Is the love of God the controlling narrative of your life? The effect of this psalm, of reading it, of singing it, makes him so. More so than any other relationship in this world, more than any other job or accolade that you can earn or achieve, is the Lord our Lord that takes this place in your life. Now, to leave it there is to say... This is what should be true in Christians' lives. Is it true in yours? And now we've become pietistic for piety's sake. And I don't know too many people in the church who have really changed by pastors saying, you know what, you should do this more. You should pray more. You should read your Bible more. So how does this psalm change us? It is seeing what, is, what it truly means. There's many ways this changes us, but for the sake of our time, it is seeing what it truly means for God to be mindful of you. And that, friends, is to see Jesus. That the promise David held on to, that God would move towards him and all of his people in a final way to rescue him and bring him to himself, is what? Fulfilled in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, as we read earlier, talks about this in chapter 2. It, 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 go home and read it this afternoon. 
And the author, as we read, he quotes Psalm, or she quotes Psalm 8, and sees Jesus as the one made lower for a time than the heavenly beings. The writer says this in Hebrews 2.9, as we read, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, right? All of a sudden now seeing, uh, in the first reading we saw as mankind, but now in the second reading we're seeing it in light of Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of what? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, how did God move towards us? in Jesus, but do you know what that means? Did he wave at you? Did he smile at you? Did he blow you a kiss? What the New Testament writers are saying is, no, 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 he suffered for you, that you might know the extent to which he loves you. He died for you so that by the grace of God, as the writer of Hebrews says, he might taste death for everyone, which implies that your death one day is not really death for those who are in Christ. And in so doing, his glory as the one true crown creation now becomes your glory. All of the glory of God All of God's glory that has been given to us as crown creation now comes through him. The one who suffered and died, the one who moved towards you, who was mindful of you all the way to the cross and was resurrected and exalted and found righteous in the sight of the Father. All that Jesus earned and deserved is yours. In other words, his sufferings resulted in your crown. That's the gospel. And this is what it means for God to be mindful of you, for you to see Jesus. As we reread Psalm 8, in light of the cross, it is in his words and actions that become what now? Where you, where I am called to derive my significance. Not in the wonderful things that I'll do as a pastor or father, but in what Jesus has done for me. At the same time, it is his name, not my name, not the name of Wallace Presbyterian Church, not the PCA, not any name that you can think of in this earth that what becomes primary. In other words, it is the love of Christ that becomes the defining narrative of the Christian's lives that shape who we are as his people. And my only point of application for you is would you allow it to be so? Would you allow his suffering, his his moving towards you, his love for you, be the narrative that shapes you more than any other narrative? Would we say no to the other narratives and lies that feed, that we feed on or that we tell ourselves? Because think about this. Here's what's interesting. What does it mean to have his glory? It's actually to be seen as Christ. We say this as church people. Right? We're in Christ. Right? God sees us as he sees his son. But let's, let, let's go one step closer. It, it, it means to be forgiven. But we can go even one step 
further as well. It's not just forgiven. It's to be seen as righteous in his sight. And here's the conflicting message. Here, here's the lie, right? It's that what defines us today primarily is not the righteousness of Christ. It's the shame and guilt you feel as fallen sinners. It's who you're not as a father this morning. It's who you're not as a mother this morning or a friend or a sibling. It's, it's the failure in your business. It's what you haven't achieved Those things are the megaphones that we walk in here every morning, every day listening to. That this psalm is trying to fight against. That we would no longer find our significance in those things. That we'd no longer find them as primarily defining who we are. But it would be the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now look, Jesus knows this. Which is why if you continue reading in the rest of Hebrews, what does he say to you? That that because you are in him, because of the glory that is now yours, he is what, friends, not ashamed to call you brothers. Why would he use that word? Because he knows what is ultimately the loudest megaphone and defining narrative of his creation is the shame and guilt that you feel because of your sin, the very thing that he came here to die for. And that may not be everybody here this morning that's feeling that, and I appreciate that. But for those that are, you need to hear these words. That to have the glory of God is to be seen as Jesus, is not to just be forgiven of that sin, of that shame, but it's to be given the righteousness of Christ, to have what only he has earned. Therefore, therefore, to know in full the love of God and how he has moved towards you in spite of the things that you believe about yourself, in spite of the things that define us. That's why we come to this table weekly, that we may have that narrative shape who we are and not the narratives of our sin, of our baggage, of the things that God has not only forgiven us for, but that he is ultimately rooting out of our hearts as we become more aligned with who he is and ultimately who we are as his creation. So I'll ask again, will you allow this to happen? Will you allow this gospel to be the narrative that shapes you above all other narratives? More than any of the lies that we would tell ourselves or we would allow others to tell ourselves and that we would be what God, before the foundations of the world, Presbyterians, has already deemed you to be, which is his crowned creation. a people who see Jesus and make his name and his love for us the primary liturgy that shapes us. By God's grace, would it be true? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant David and how you used him and how you used him to write this psalm for us that we may have its words, and that, that, that even in the, the cultural distance, um, there are some things that remain true no matter how many years there are between us. That as people, as your creations, as your fallen creations, we look in so many places for significance and worth, and, and what the psalm is saying is, is that you are the only place to find that. And it's not just something we say because we're, we're religious people, or even because we're Christians. We say it because we know what it means for you to move towards us 
He'll love us, and we see that in Jesus. Would he be the liturgy that shapes those thoughts, shapes our lives from this day until the day that we go to see you face to face? It is in his name we pray. Amen.